In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight from Psalm 97. This psalm has no title in Hebrew. Therefore, there is no any indication to the date or the authorship. However, according to the Septuagint, there is a title. You know, there are two versions. The Hebrew version, and this Hebrew version was translated into Greek by 70 scholars. That's why it's called the Septuagint. And when the apostles wrote the New Testament, the New Testament was written in Greek. So they quoted the Septuagint Old Testament. That's why the official version of the Old Testament for all the traditional churches like the Orthodox churches and the Catholic Church is the Septuagint, not the Hebrew. So according to the Septuagint, there is a title for this psalm. The title is A Psalm of David, When His Land Was Established, which means the author of this psalm is David the prophet. But what does it mean when his land was established? It is either when David had obtained the possession of the kingdom of Israel and Judah, you know, at the first, the tribe of Judah, acknowledged David as their king. And then later, the rest of the tribes acknowledged David to be their king. So maybe he wrote this psalm when he obtained position of the kingdom of Israel and Judah, becoming king over all the tribes of Israel. Or maybe according to First Chronicles chapter 18, from verse 1 and 2, when he had gained position of all the countries around them, according to the divine promise, as we read it in First Chronicles chapter 18, verse 1 and 2. Actually, in the letter to Hebrews, St. Paul quotes a part of the seventh verse of this psalm, and he applied this part to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he quoted this verse, he quoted according to the Septuagint, not according to the Hebrew. You know, the second part of verse 7, Worship him, all you gods. But in Septuagint, worship him, all you angels. And when you read, actually, Hebrew chapter 1, it is said, worship him, all you angels, which support what I just told you, that the official version is the Septuagint. And this is the version that was used in writing the New Testament. There are some psalms called enthronement psalms. The enthronement psalms are Psalm 93, then from 95 to 99. This Psalm 97 is one of the enthronement psalms. What does it mean, enthronement psalms? These psalms celebrate God as king and affirm his lordship over all creation. These psalms actually emphasize God's care and providence 
exemplified in the ways in which God sustains, controls, directs every aspect of creation. As the king of whole creation, he sustains, he controls, he directs every aspect of creation. And these psalms may have been read each year at the temple as part of the fall festival in which the people would celebrate God's enthronement. Psalm 97 begins with the declaration that the Lord reigns. And the rest of the psalm tells everyone why it matters that the Lord reigns. If I am telling you, I want you to be aware that the Lord reigns. Maybe somebody would ask me why. Why it is matter to me to know this. So the rest of the psalm answering this question. Why it matters to us that the Lord reigns. These psalms have sometimes been interpreted as prophetic picture of the second return of Christ. Because now the Lord reigns over the believers, but the non-believers reject his lordship, his kingship. But in the second coming, the Lord reigns over everybody. Nobody can reject his lordship or kingship. In Psalm 96, speak about the recognition of the kingdom of God. But here in Psalm 97, the judgment by which it has been manifested. So why we say he reigns? What are the manifestations of his kingship? So here what is the prominent thought? Is the manifestation of the kingship of God over the whole creation. So Psalm 97 encouraged those who read it to remember that God is the only true hope we have because he is the only true king. He is the only true God. He is the only true Lord. And this psalm actually is one of the ninth hour psalms of Agbeya. It is the second psalm. First one is 96. Second one in the ninth hour is Psalm 97. St. Augustine says about this psalm, this psalm is entitled a psalm of David when his land was restored. Let us refer the whole psalm to Christ. If we wish to keep the road of a right understanding, let us not depart from the cornerstone. Cornerstone is Christ. So the earth restored is the resurrection of the flesh. For Augustine and other fathers, as I will mention, for them the soul is the heaven and the earth is the flesh. So the restoration of the flesh is the resurrection of the bodies in the second coming. So he is saying, the earth restored is the resurrection of the flesh. For after his resurrection, all those things which are sung in this psalm were done. Let us then hear a psalm full of joy on the restoration of the earth. Let the Lord our God excite in us a hope and pleasure 
worthy of so great a thing. May he rule our discourse that it be fit for your hearts that whatever joy our heart feels in such sights, so when we reflect about the resurrection of our bodies and how we will live eternally in joy with God, so this joy will be in our hearts. So St. Augustine is saying, whatever joy our heart feels in such sights, he may bring it to our tongue. When your heart is joyful, you will actually praise God. Then conduct it to our ears. So you will hear it with your ear. When your tongue praise the Lord, you will hear it. So joy start here, uttered on your mouth, hear it by your ear. Then to your heart, again when you say it, your heart will actually increasingly joyful. So it will be this cycle. Then to your action. Then it will actually appear in our action. This is a short psalm, just 12 verse, and we can actually divide it into three sections. From 1 to 6, rejoicing in the greatness of God. 7 to 9, the influence of the coming of the Lord. And from 10 to 12, the blessedness of the righteous. So let's start from verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad. The Lord God is the true and supreme king, and all other kings are his servant. Therefore, let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad. Let all the inhabitants of the earth and the islands, the islands so numerous in the sea, rejoice and be glad because the Lord reigns. Why? Because the earthly kings are not fair most of the time. They are driven by political motives. So if we are oppressed, by any of the kings of the earth, then the Lord, who is the supreme king and can easily control and bring other kings to order, then God will not fail to protect and to shield his children. And we saw in our contemporary life how when the president of Egypt stood against the church back in 1981, how God, who is the true king of the whole earth, converted everything, changed everything in a miraculous way. Then the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Don't be scared from the rulers of the earth, even if they oppress us, but God is the supreme king. Every man's judgment proceeds from the Lord, from his counsel and providence, and in all affairs. The reign of the Lord is why we worship him. God is sovereign, and he rules over the earth. 
And the knowledge that the Lord reigns should cause joy to all people in the world because he is a just king, a fair king, a merciful king, a compassionate king. So joy is supposed to characterize the lives of God's people on earth, knowing that the Lord reigns. And we read St. Paul's commanding the Philippians Christian and also the Thessalonians Christian to rejoice always. St. Paul even said about himself that when he is treated as sorrowful, yet he always rejoices because he knows that the Lord reigns. Also, the Lord reigns can be speaking of his incarnation when God condescended to appear on earth. The earth is bound to rejoice. Joy on earth. The the angels appeared and said, Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Jesus has come, and all power is given unto him in heaven and on earth. So Christ our Lord, who at one time humbly appeared before the kings of this world, like before Herod and before Pontius Pilate for judgment, has reigned, and as he said before his ascension, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. God is not subject to anyone, nor can anyone claim any authority over him. He said to Pontius Pilate, you have no authority over my soul. I have authority to lay it down and to take it back. Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. And from Jesus Christ, the ruler over the kings of the earth. When we know this, let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad. Because the Lord himself has let himself down to be our brother, as St. Paul said in Hebrews, that he may be the first among many brethren, though he is our God. And as I told you, many fathers like St. Augustine, St. Jerome, and scholars like Tertullian and Origen used to interpret the earth as the flesh, as the body, and the heaven as the soul. So the Lord reigns, not only the souls of the believer will be joyful because the Lord reigns over our souls, but also he reigns over our body, making the whole being of a human being glad. That's why St. Paul said, glorify God in your bodies, because the Lord reigns not only over your soul, but also over your bodies. And according to St. Jerome, he said, this multitude of isles are the believers. You know, In the scripture, the sea represented the world. The waves of the sea, the attacks of the enemy. So, the isles are the believers in the middle of the attacks of the world, the sea. The believers are attacked by temptation on every side. Like how the waves of the sea attack the islands on every side. 
And according to St. Augustine, the Isles also the local churches all over the world. So the Isles can be the local churches or the believers. St. Augustine says, It is so indeed because the word of God has been preached not in the continent alone, but also in those isles which lie in mid-sea. Even these are full of Christians, full of the servants of God. For the sea does not retard God who made it. Where ships can approach, cannot the word of God? If the ships can approach the islands, then the word of God can approach the island. The isles are filled, but figuratively, the isles may be taken for all the churches. Why isles? Because the waves of all temptations roar around them. But as an isle may be beaten by the waves which on every side dash around it, yet cannot be broken, rather itself does break the advancing waves, than by them are broken, so also the churches of God, springing up throughout the world, have suffered the persecution of the ungodly, who roar around them on every side. And behold, the isles, the churches, stand fixed, and at last the sea is calmed. So he's saying, as the waves roar around the islands, but the isles are not broken, rather the waves will end up broken in the same way the churches are attacked by waves of temptation, persecution from every side. But at the end, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Verse 2, clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. From verse 2 to verse 5, the picture here of the arrival of God. And perhaps David have had in mind the appearance of God in Mount Sinai which was marked by a thick cloud on the mountain and a smoke of a furnace, as we read in Exodus chapter 19. God is often thus represented as encamped by clouds. So clouds actually signify the appearance of God. Even when he ascended, he ascended in the clouds. So God covers his deity when he shows himself to the sons of men or his excessive glory would destroy them. So he covers his deity because we cannot handle his excessive glory. So there must be a veiling of his infinite splendor if anything is to be seen by finite things or finite being like us. So, he says here, clouds and darkness surround him. What are clouds and darkness? Cloud and darkness can represent 
the judgment of God so deep, unsearchable, as you cannot look in the clouds, so his judgment are very deep, unsearchable. There is a depth in his counsels which we cannot fathom or comprehend. We are not aware of his will or plans, nor is it fit that we should be led into the mysteries of his rule. Who can comprehend? God is incomprehensible. But we say God is light, and there is no darkness at all around him. So how in this verse clouds and darkness? Because darkness does not belong to the nature of God. By the way, in the Arabic translation, it's not darkness. It is cloud and fog. As-Sahab wa Cloud and fog. But if we take darkness, according to the English translation, so the darkness here in the eyes of the wicked who cannot see him. Like a blind man cannot see the shining of the sun. However invisible he may appear to be, he's still really present and judges his people with extreme justice. So if we cannot see him, if he is invisible to us, but this doesn't mean He does not exist. He is present and he will judge us with extreme justice. St. Augustine says, They who confess their blindness may obtain to be enlightened. Let there be therefore clouds and darkness round about him. For those who have not understood him, for those who confess unhumble themselves, righteousness and judgment are the direction of his seat. So St. Augustine is saying, the first part, clouds and darkness surround him to the ungodly. She cannot understand him. But for the godly, righteousness and justice, they will see his righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Which means God's throne is not based on deception, but the foundation of his throne is nothing else but righteousness and justice. This is why the earth can rejoice at his reign. Some commentator said cloud and darkness may denote the mystery of his divine nature at his first coming. People saw him as human being although he is God. So he appeared in a form of a servant, in the likeness of sinful flesh. So the divinity veiled himself with flesh and cannot with that outward splendor which the Jews expelled. And he cannot with that outward splendor which the Jews expected as an earthly king. Verse 3, a fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. So the reign of the Lord means the judgment of his enemies. 
It is blessedness to his children, but judgment to his enemies. So the image here reveals the Lord as a divine warrior coming to establish righteousness and right order by removing all those who are opposing him, all those unrighteous, ungodly. His appearance is to correct the wrongs and administer justice. As St. Paul said, our God is a consuming fire. He comes to reign, and in his reign, all his enemies will be destroyed. Some apply this verse to the gift of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost when it appears like tongues of fire. The fire can be the punishment that God inflicts on the wicked when he chooses to punish them in this world. That's why it says, and burns up his enemies round about. He will send a fire before him whenever he may wish to judge and punish the wicked. But another interpretation refers it to the fire that will precede the general judgment, happen before the general judgment, and burn men and all manner of living things on the face of the earth upon the coming of Christ. But St. Augustine believed that this fire is not the fire of eternal punishment, but the fire that purifies and cleanses from sin. Why? St. Augustine says, because he speaks of some fire which shall go before him, before he comes to judgment, the verse says, fire goes before him. Means what? Before his coming to judge the world. So what, what is the fire that comes before him? The fire will burn after his advent. So the eternal fire will burn after his coming. But the fire that goes before his coming to judge the world is to be understood of temporal punishment of the unbelieving and ungodly to lead them to repentance. So let's understand the fire, if possible, of salvation of the redeemed also. And thus we have proposed. So St. Augustine says, this fire goes before him, it's not the eternal fire. But it's fire to burn, to discipline the ungodly, so they will repent. And the redeemed one, in order to cleanse them from their sins, Thus, actually, this fire is a fire that leads us to repentance. Of course, the blood of Jesus Christ is what cleanses us from sin. But meaning here is not like purgatory for the Catholic. But the meaning here, this discipline can lead us to repentance. Verse 4, His lightnings light the world, the earth sees and trembles. So the psalmist goes on with the relation of God's power over the wicked. God, when he chooses, terrifies his enemies 
not only with his fire, but even with the ordinary lightning, and cut them down so unexpectedly that they cannot possibly protect themselves. So here in verse 3, he will burn them with his fire. In verse 4, because of the lightning that actually enlightened the world, the earth, the earth means the ungodly here, sees and trembles. But some interpret verse 4 of God's judgment on the Jewish nation, which were manifest and clear and obvious to the whole world. So the lightning here on the Jewish nation that crucified the Lord and the whole earth when they, they saw what happened at year 70 AD when Titus destroyed the temple and burned the Holy of the Holies, the whole earth actually trembled. Other interpreted of the doctrine of gospel because of the fast progress they made and their large extent in the world in a very little time. So the lightning here that light the whole world are the teaching of the apostles. And the whole earth trembled when the teaching of the apostles about the resurrection of Christ and his crucifixion and his coming spread in the whole world. So the spread of the good news were done by the apostles who were the means of enlightening the world with the true knowledge of the way of salvation by Christ. And the earth, as if it had sense and feeling, the earth sees and trembles. He personified the earth here. So this is a great description to give an idea of the effect of God's lightning indicating his power and his majesty. He has only to look upon his words. Anyone, if he looked upon the words of God, will stand in awe and tremble. So even the earth that is regarded as stable and firm, now at the lightning, not only shaken but melting, as we read in verse 5, the mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. So not only they trembled, but even the mountains are melting and crumbling away at the descent of God from heaven to earth. The psalmist now shows the extent of God's power from its effect and again compares it to fire because wax is melted by fire. As wax cannot be brought near the fire without liquefying and melting, thus the mountains, however elevated and durable, even the very earth, the most solid of all the elements, cannot stand for a moment, should God wish to consume and destroy them. So nothing will be able to stand before the coming of the divine warrior. The earth sees and trembles. Mountain melt like wax before the Lord. All that's stable and enduring cannot be stable and endure before God. 
because he is the Lord of all the earth, the creator and the ruler of the entire world. St. Augustine says, Who are the hills or the mountains? They are the proud. So every high thing raising itself against God at the deeds of Christ and of the Christian, they will tremble, yield. And when I say what has been already said melted, a better word cannot be found. So he said, I cannot find a better word than melt. They will melt before the existence of Christ. The God who thus manifested himself is not the God of a particular nation, but the God of the whole world before whom all created things are as nothing. That's why he said, they are melting like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth, of the whole earth. Then, in verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. The heavens declare his righteousness by signs in heaven. It's proclaimed that the Lord has come to judgment. In the second coming, we will see the sign of the cross in heaven, which will announce the coming of the Lord to judge the world. Both Jews and Gentiles shall partake of the glorious fruits and benefits of his coming. So, when God comes, the righteous will be happy. All the people will see his glory. All the people will see his glory. But, who are the heavens in a symbolic way? St. Augustine says the heaven represents the apostles. St. Augustine says, what heavens have declared? The heaven declared the glory of God. Who are the heavens? Those who have become his seed. For as God sits in the heavens, so does he sit in the apostles. So does he sit in the preachers of the gospel. Some interpret verse 6 saying that these words allude to the angel's trumpet that heaven declare, so means the angel trumpet that will announce from heaven the judge is about to sit in judgment on the whole world and the severity of his justice on those who rejected a merciful redeemers. So when he said the heaven declare, means the angels will blow the trumpet announcing the coming of the judge of the whole world. And then all people see his glory when he shall appear in the clouds in his majesty with all the angels. And it's repeated several times when he comes, he will come in the, his glory and the glory of his father. His faithfulness to his people and his sovereign justice in the punishment of evil have been openly and visibly manifested in the sight of all the world. So all the people see his glory means they will see his faithfulness to his children and his justice in punishment for the evil doers. Verse 7 Let all be put to shame who serve 
carved images, who boast of idols, worship him, all you gods. So can you imagine all those who are worshippers of idols? or the atheists, what will happen to them in the last day when they realize that God is a true God and there is no other God except the true God, they will be defeated. When it is sufficiently clear that there is only one true God who rules and governs in heaven and on earth, and who is able with the greatest power, wisdom, and justice to direct everything. And he is the judge of the whole world. So, considering the greatness and power of God, those who boast of idols will be ashamed. So the display of the real divine power makes manifest the powerlessness of the idols and puts the worshipper of the idols to embarrassment. They would be regretful and humiliated at the powerlessness of their gods. Those who boast in idols, idols can be money, can be pleasure, can be ego and pride. So, who boast of idols is a prediction in the form of prayer of the immense confusion that will overwhelm all the worshippers of idols on the day of judgment. So maybe he is praying here, David is praying and said, let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols. So we can understand this as prediction, as a prophecy. He is telling us what will happen or also as prayer. Those who are trusting in idols are going to be judged. They are going to lose. They are going to be counted as the adversaries of the Lord. Because they will then most clearly see their idols were nothing. That they who spoke through them were demons, unclean spirits with whom they will be condemned to eternal punishment. So, this verse can be also a prayer that the Gentiles who are worshippers of idols may be enlightened to see the vanity of the idols and turn to the true God. Then he said in the second part of verse 7, which was quoted in Hebrew chapter 1, worship him all you gods. Worship him. Let all so-called gods bow down and prostrate before the Lord. Even the demons will prostrate before him. All you gods, according to the Septuagint, as I told you, it is all his angels, not gods. So the reference here, according to the quotation in Hebrew chapter 1, verse 6, to the angels, as we read in Hebrew 1.6, but when he again bring the firstborn into the world, he says, Lord, let all the angels of God worship him. And what is the word again? Again bring the firstborn, the firstborn is Jesus. 
So again it refers to what? To the second coming, when he comes again. So uh, the apostle would appear, but the word again to mean his second coming. And to apply these words, worship him all you angels, so he applied these words to it. For no other words of the sort are found in, in the entire scripture. St. Augustine, about worship him, all you gods, he said, let pagans learn to worship God. They wish to worship angels. Let them imitate the angels and worship God. God who is worshipped by the angels. Worship him, all you angels. Some people will worship angels. So St. Augustine says, see if the angels are worshiping God, so imitate the angels. Instead of worshiping the angels, imitate them and worship God who is worshiped by the angels. Verse 8. What will happen when we see that all who serve carved images are put to shame? Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgment. O Lord. So the whole earth benefits from the majestic and awesome revelation of God. But his people, Zion means the church, his people, the members of the church of the new covenant, are especially glad. There was joy in Zion. Why? Because the evils and hatred of idolatry were at and that the worship of God had taken place of idol worship so the evil and hatred of idolatry are ended the Lord comes for the relief of his children for their deliverance for their exaltation his righteous judgment make the daughters of Judah rejoice. So, until verse 8, he is speaking about God to the world. But from verse 9, now he is addressing God. Verse 9, For you, Lord, are most high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Until verse 8, the psalmist spoke about God to the world. But from verse 9, he addressed God directly, praising and extolling him as exalted far above all gods. He gives a reason for God's people beginning to exalt and be glad on hearing those things. And the reason is, God is exalted above all gods. And according to St. Augustine, the reason of their joy, why Zion is rejoicing, what daughters of Judah are rejoicing, because God is the Most High. Not over Zion only, but over all the earth. To this whole earth, the judgment of God prevailed, so that it assembled its nations from every quarter. So the judgment of God assembled all the nations from every quarter. Verse 10, you who love the Lord hate evil. 
He preserved the soul of his sins. He delivered them out of the hand of the wicked. So from verse 10, the psalmist concludes by exhorting the people of God to lead a life of holiness and purity, of which they will get a great reward, both in this world and in the life to come. When he says, you who love the Lord, he is appealing to all who are truly righteous. For love cover all virtues, as we read in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. So when he said, oh, you who love the Lord, means who actually growing in all the virtues. So this verse 10 exhortation to those who love God to prove themselves. How? When we hate evil. Because if we love God means we hate what God hates. And God hates evil. Hate evil which can only proceed from the heart. This is why he does not say fly or decline from evil. Because evil comes from heart. So when I am holy, when I hate the evil, I will become holy. The heart is the source of all our actions, either good or bad. Because as the love of the supreme good comes from the heart, in the like manner, evil comes from the heart also. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murder, adulteries, fornication, theft, false witness, blasphemies. So he said, hate evil. Hate evil that comes from your heart. He did not say, because if evil is something external, he would say, run away from evil, fly from evil. But evil comes from my heart. That's why he said, hate evil. Then, he announced the reward of hating evil by saying, God preserves the souls of his sin. He delivered them out of the hand of the wicked. He preserved the souls of his sins. He delivered them out of the hand of the wicked. So when we hate evil, this is the reward. God is a faithful, diligent, powerful, and prudent guardian of those who love him. He will defend them. He delivered them from the power of the wicked. So this promise is fulfilled even in this life in regard of the righteous. For God often saves their lives. God also certainly saves their souls, which is a far greater blessing. He preserves our souls in the eternal life and deliver us out of the hand of the wicked here in this life. That's why he used the expression, he preserved the souls. Why he preserves the souls? For as we read in Romans chapter 8, all things work out for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. In verse 11, there is another beautiful promise. Another reward. Light is sown for the righteous. Gladness for the upright in heart. 
Another reward of the righteous is they will not only be delivered from all evil, but they will be filled with a blessing. And here, it's a beautiful figure. The light is planted. So the figure here of sowing light. And this actually metaphor is unusual one. But the meaning here is beautiful. Because when you plant something, we will reap it. So that the righteous will not always be in darkness. Because light is sown in them. This sowing or this planting of the light is in preparation for him a harvest of joy. So God actually is planting light in us so we will reap joy as it will certainly be produced as the harvest from the grain that is sown. So when actually you plant a seed, you reap a lot of fruit in the same way. That's why he said light is sown for the righteous. And what is the harvest here? Gladness for the upright in heart. Though there may be present tribulation, but there will be ultimate peace and triumph. What is sown will come up again in due time. It's like the winter seed. It may lie long under the clouds and seem to be lost and buried, yet it will return in a rich and plentiful increase. So, if you are going through tribulation right now, don't worry. The light is sown, and in the fullness of time, it will bring gladness and joy. For justice directed the heart, and an unspeakable amount of joy is poured into the upright of heart from the fact of its obedience to the will of God and everything that pleases Him. When we obey the will of God and we do everything that pleases Him, we will reap unspeakable amount of joy. Which means nothing can sadden the righteous heart. Will always will be happy, even in the time of tribulation. They rejoice and are joyful, even under the most severe tribulation. As the Lord promised us, your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. Last verse, verse 12. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous. This is a consequence of what has been said in verse 11. Joy is sown in the upright in heart, for the upright in heart. So what will follow? They rejoice, not in the vanities of the world, like the wicked, but they will rejoice in the Lord himself, who bestows justice and gladness on us. So the rejoicing should not be primarily in what God given us, not in his gifts, but in God himself. Because he himself is our real and firm joy, being most beautiful to the eyes of the soul. And not only we will rejoice in God, but this joy leads to what? To thanksgiving. Give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. 
when we, the, as we say in the Psalm of Saturday, mentioning your holy name brings joy to our souls. So they should over celebrate with thanksgiving the memory of the sanctification they received from God. Because when we remember his holy name, we remember what God has done for us, how he sanctified us. For the believers should never forget so great a favor because God transformed us from being sinful and wicked to be holy and righteous. Whatever is the matter of our rejoicing ought to be the matter of our thanksgiving. So we rejoice in the Lord. We rejoice in his sanctification. That's why we are grateful when we remember the holiness of God and because of his holiness, he transferred us from being sinful and wicked to be righteous and holy. God is supremely holy. As Isaiah heard the seraphim saying, holy, 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 in Isaiah chapter 6, that's why we give praise to the remember of his holiness. And in all our chanting, we say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And when with these praises, we always remember that our God is most holy. Therefore, we should, with all earnestness, endeavor to make ourselves holy too. As St. Peter said, it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And St. Paul said, This is the will of God, your sanctification. You become holy. God is ruling, and he has promised to vindicate. God repeatedly did so in the past and he will do it again. Let me conclude by this quote by St. Augustine. If you are Christian, look for tribulation in this world. Brethren, you deceive yourself. How? What the gospel did not promise you, promise not yourself. The gospel did not promise us life without tribulation. So don't promise yourself life without tribulation. What the gospel does not promise you, don't promise it to yourself. The gospel says this, that in the last times, many evils, many stumbling, blocks, many tribulation, much iniquity shall abound. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. That's what the Bible promised us. Whosoever then has been steadfastly, fervent in spirit, his love shall not wax cold when he sees tribulations and trials. Let no man therefore promise himself what the gospel does not promise. Behold, Happier time will come in the second coming of Christ. It is good for you to listen to him who is not deceived nor has deceived any man. Listen to the word of God. Because God is not deceived himself and he does not deceive us. Who promised you joy, not here, but in himself. Joy in himself. That's why he said, in the world you will have so many tribulations, but be of good cheer I have overcome the world. This actually concludes Psalm 97. Glory be to God.
for ever and ever. Amen.